welcome and welcome to this uh, first uh, LSE Ideas uh, lecture of this particular year uh, and not, not the first lecture which will be assessing and looking at China. Firstly, let me say who I am. Uh, my name is Professor Michael McCox. I'm an emeritus professor here and a long associate of the IR department and of LSE Ideas, where I'm founding co-director or director, uh, still in business and not yet quite dead. Uh, but welcome. It's very nice to have you along. And welcome to you all for this lecture, particularly those who are possibly even attending their first uh, LSE lecture. One of the things that LSE does, I think, particularly well, I'd even say better than anybody else, um, is our public lecture series. And I think the, the size of the audience tonight, the variety of people here this evening, and the hard work done by the people in LSE Ideas also tells us something, but it tells us a lot about the school uh, and its uh, tradition. I won't go into the long history of LSE Ideas, just to say that myself and my Norwegian Viking colleague over there started the whole thing off a few years ago, uh, and we think it's been a very great success, and I hope you do too. Uh, one of the things LSE Ideas has done over the years is debate some big ideas. We've annoyed a lot of people, I hope. Uh, I hope we made a few people feel very uncomfortable. But one of the very big issues which we have discussed over, over many years now, and we're back to discuss it here tonight and I wonder why, is of course the, the question of China, or the People's Republic of China. Why has it risen? How far has it risen? And, and this is the discussion tonight, can it do so peacefully? And with what long-term consequences for the region and indeed uh, for the world? I cannot think of two people better uh, equipped to discuss and reflect on this than my two good friends over here, uh, Barry Buzan, who will do all the hard work this evening, and Arnie Westad, who will do some of it uh, at the end. Uh, Barry, it can be said, is the father of the godfather of international relations in this particular country. Uh, for over 40 years, he has shaped IR, defined IR, and I think made a huge contribution uh, to IR, both here uh, and in other places, which of course will remain nameless. Barry's work on security is now reflected in, I think, his highly innovative and challenging work on how to make sense of the peaceful rise of China. Indeed, I had the privilege of co-authoring an article with Barry on this trying to compare the peaceful rise of China with the United States, and I can tell you it was great fun, and we also got greatly attacked by both people in Beijing and in Washington. Uh, Barry, of course, publishes a book a year, uh, and indeed next year he will be bringing out another book, The Global Transformation, which will be published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, beside Barry, of course, is Arnie Westad, who has many great qualities, including being an Arsenal supporter, which at the moment is a very tragic experience. I wouldn't say so. No, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of, I've mixed ideas on that particular one. Arnie, again, has redefined much of the debate about the Cold War. His great book on the global Cold War, I think, has been read by anybody serious on that. It's been translated into several languages. Arnie's book, which I first read, was on the Chinese Civil War, and his recent big book on, on, on the rise of China, not over the last 10 years, but indeed the transformations of China uh, since the late 18th century. Both are close friends. 
Both are great academics and both are great speakers. Could you give an LSE welcome to Barry Buzan to start it off? Thank you, Mick, and welcome all. Uh, this evening, I want to give you a sketch of uh, what is actually a quite long and elaborate argument. Uh, if you actually want to see the whole argument and all of its supporting evidence, uh, it's now available at the Chinese Journal of International Politics as an online first. It should be, I think, published in the last issue uh, this year. This is the third in a trilogy. Mick mentioned the, uh, mentioned the second one, comparing China and the U.S. as possible cases of peaceful rising great powers. Uh, the, the gist of what I want to do this evening is to look at peaceful rise, or rather peaceful rise stroke development, uh, as a grand strategy for China. So my focus is going to be um, on this idea of peaceful rise development, PRD, I'm going to call it for short, uh, as a grand strategy for China. So I'll start by briefly looking at the idea of grand strategy and its meaning. Uh, then I'm going to look uh, at the, the ends and means of, uh, of China's foreign and security policy. And then I'm going to look at the idea of PRD um, as a way of meeting these, uh, uh, these ends and means. And I'll draw some conclusions about two different approaches to, uh, to peaceful rise. I'm going to start from the supposition that peaceful rise is really the only game in town for China or indeed um, any other rising great power because the idea of a warlike rise, which is how great powers used to do it, is now a bit irrational. Right? It's not impossible, uh, but nobody would think about doing this as a sane and sensible and preferred way of doing things because war is just uh, too dangerous um, and too expensive. So the debate narrows down to peaceful rise as the only option, and within that, I'm going to look at two different uh, strategies of peaceful rise. One I'm going to call cold peaceful rise, uh, and my argument is that on its current trajectory, that's what China's going to get. Um, and the other is warm peaceful rise, and I'm going to argue that that would be a much better strategy for China, but it will need to make some changes to its policy um, if it wants to go in that direction. Now, curiously, if you look at the literature uh, on China and grand strategy, there's quite a lot of argument that says China doesn't have a grand strategy and needs one. Uh, uh, there's a lot of that literature in China and some outside of it as well. So I'm obviously in disagreement with this. In fact, rather curiously, the only people who think that China has a grand strategy are American realists. Right? Uh, so American realists think that China has a grand strategy, and they think uh, they're happy to call this uh, kind of peaceful rise. But being realists, they are obliged to think that peaceful rise is intrinsically impossible for great powers because the realist logic of power politics doesn't really contain room for, uh, for that kind of thing. So their supposition is that peaceful rise is a, is a strategic deception. Right? Or at, uh, to put it in its kindest possible form, it's a, uh, a temporary policy to cover a period of weakness and that as soon as China is strong enough, um, it will start uh, uh, muscling about and uh, 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 behaving like a good realist power 
should. So realists think that China does have this strategy, but that it's necessarily temporary. It's necessarily a kind of strategic deception, with China just biding its time until it gets more powerful. I'm going to argue um, that it's more than that, or at least it could be more than that. That this idea of peaceful rice development is a homegrown uh, Chinese idea. Um, Peaceful rise and development are interlinked ideas, which is why um, I put them together. And the reason for this will become clear as I I go on. And it's not necessarily transitional. Um, Here I'm borrowing a line of thinking from Chris Roy Smith, um, who argues about the moral purpose of the state. The moral purpose of the state is therefore an intervening variable into just normal uh, power politics, and this means that there is scope for states to decide, if they wish, to have grand strategies that, uh, as it were, exit uh, from the logic of uh, pure realism. So the logic behind peaceful rise uh, uh, development is quite simple uh, and quite straightforward, and it's been there since the late 1970s when Deng Xiaoping began uh, his reform and opening up policies. Uh, The supposition behind my argument is that this logic has remained pretty much constant, i.e. there's been no great disturbance in the intellectual foundations Um, on which uh, Deng Xiaoping based uh, the origins of this policy. The first is that China has an urgent need to develop. No question there. Second is that in order to develop quickly, um, it needs to be globally engaged because only uh, by global engagement and becoming part of the world economy uh, can countries develop quickly. Thirdly, is that the consequence uh, for China's neighbors and for other great powers uh, of a rapidly rising very big country like China uh, are likely to be disturbing and unsettling, and therefore there's a need to reassure those countries, and thus the the idea of peaceful rise, peaceful development, is is now the preferred phrase. Um, And this is to avoid uh, triggering a kind of security spiral which would threaten the global engagement on which China's economic uh, growth depends. So China, a bit like Germany, although I don't want to push that comparison too far, um, China occupies uh, a challenging geopolitical condition, and it needs, therefore, to have a very careful policy in order to manage its rise in order not to get into trouble. So I I think China does have a grand strategy, Um, It's not a question of whether it has a grand strategy or not. Peaceful rise development is its grand strategy. Uh, That leads to three questions. First of all, does the Chinese leadership fully understand the logic and contradictions of this grand strategy? Uh, And I'm going to say that the, uh, the answer to that is apparently not, or at least not fully enough. The second question is, does China have sufficient depth and coherence in its foreign policy-making process to implement such a strategy? And again, the answer is seemingly not, or not yet. China's foreign policy-making process is too decentralized at the moment to be able to handle the necessary coherence. 
And the third question um, is, of course, the, the Sun Tzu question. Uh, all of you, no doubt, have read The Art of War, or if you haven't read The Art of War, you've read enough about The Art of War to know that its basic message is that in China, the thing that is most highly valued in relation to the art of war is strategic deception. Right? That's the way you win wars. You don't fight wars, you win them by strategic deception. So we have to ask the question... Is peaceful rise development a strategic deception? Is it a Sun Tzu-style art of war strategy? And I'm going to say that really that question remains open. Possibly uh, the answer is yes, uh, but it could also be no. I'm not going to go into much detail about uh, the nature of grand strategy. I think this is fairly straightforward. Uh, There are lots of definitions. Uh, There's one by Brooks, Eikenberry, and Woolforth. Um, A set of ideas for deploying a nation's resources to achieve its interests over the long run. So it's big thinking, bringing together a theory about how the world works and uh, the place of one's state in it aimed at deploying all of the resources of a country, not just military ones, but uh, also uh, economic and cultural ones, in order to pursue uh, the aims of that, uh, of that country. And grand strategies have three important functions, uh, which is one reason why there has been concern that China apparently didn't, uh, didn't have one. The first function is that they provide a stable, overarching framework that make policy choices add up into something coherent. Otherwise, you don't quite know uh, how your bits and pieces of policy relate to each other. Second um, is that they embed and legitimize foreign and security policy politically by explaining it to the citizenry in in broad terms that everybody can understand. And thirdly, they project an image of the country to the rest of the world. That image can be a benign image, and uh, in its deployment of PRD, China has tried to present a benign image of itself, but grand strategies don't have to be benign in the image they uh, present. If you think of uh, the imperial age, think of Nazi Germany or or, uh, similar kinds of countries, they were not interested in presenting a benign image of themselves. They were out to get you, and they were quite happy to tell you so. So there's a range of possibilities here, uh, but the idea behind a grand strategy uh, is to basically uh, explain the country, project an image of the country to to the rest of the world. Now, all grand strategies are basically about bringing together a set of ends with the kinds of means that are available to, uh, to the country concerned. So the, the puzzle, if you like, of grand strategy is to define a set of aims um, and then try to make these fit with the sorts of resources that a country has and the way those resources uh, relate to the resources and powers of other countries. So ends and means is the basic key to uh, undoing the puzzle of a grand strategy. And I want to look quite closely at the ends and means uh, equation that confronts China because it's a particularly difficult one and to underline Uh, the many uh, puzzles and contradictions that it it throws up. Now, you're going to have to take my word for for the next bit, which is about the ends of of China's foreign policy. Uh, 
I don't think this is particularly controversial, and if you read your way through uh, both the IR literature coming out of China and about China, and also uh, the policy statements of the Chinese government and, and the party, there is a really a remarkable consistency about the aims of uh, China's foreign and security policies, and this has been the case uh, ever since the late 1970s. So I think there are seven core aims in uh, China's foreign and security policy. Easily, uh, the first priority is maintaining the exclusive rule of the Communist Party. No question about that. The second aim is to maintain high economic growth, and that is thought of as being necessary to maintain the rule of the Communist Party. The third aim, a very traditional Chinese one, is to maintain the stability of Chinese society. In other words, to prevent turbulence, to prevent um, the internal weakness that it is thought uh, that caused the century of humiliation and, and all of that. The fourth interesting one, this, um, to defend the country's territorial integrity. Very standard aim of almost anybody's grand strategy, but... In the case of China, um, defending the country's territorial integrity is understood to include reunification, however you read that, and all of the territorial disputes that China has with uh, countries around its border. Uh, and I'm going to come back to this as a, as a problem issue. The fifth aim, stated uh, in many different uh, ways and repeatedly, is increasing China's national power relative specifically to the U.S., but also to other great powers and to China's neighbors. Um, this curiously goes along with the idea that China wants a more multipolar, frequently used word, um, less dominated world order. So China, uh, China's grand strategy aim in, in this aspect is anti-hegemonic, and anti-hegemonism uh, is a, a much repeated rhetoric. The sixth aim, uh, and it takes this particular form of words, which is endlessly repeated, is, and I quote, maintaining favorable regional and global conditions for China's development. And again, I'm going to come back to this because that is worded in a way uh, that means it can be interpreted in lots of different, uh, different ways. And the seventh aim, um, the so-called China threat issue, is avoiding having others perceive China as threatening. Those seven aims are continuously repeated, uh, very easy to extract uh, from the literature, and very consistent over a long period of time. And this is interesting because China has changed radically since the late 1970s, and yet the rhetoric around these aims remains pretty consistent. Already, just thinking about this as a set of aims begins to expose some contradictions. Aim four, which is the one about territorial integrity, incorporates, as I suggested, a set of disputes with, uh, with neighbors. So how does this square with aim seven, avoid having others perceiving China as threatening? That's the first contradiction built into this set of, of aims. The second difficulty is what does aim six mean when it says a favorable regional environment? What does that mean? Does it mean that China has relaxed 
friendly and cooperative relations with its neighbors, which would be one understanding of a favorable regional environment? Or does it mean that China has imposed itself on its neighbors and bullied them into submission so that they go along with uh, its demands and desires? That's a very big question. And it isn't clear what the answer to that is from the way this particular aim is uh, formulated. And finally, as I suggested, there's this question about um, aim seven, avoiding having others perceive China as threatening. Is this a long-term aim, or is this merely a transitional aim to get China through um, a period of weakness and that this aim will be abandoned uh, as soon as China becomes strong enough? And that, as I've suggested is uh, an open question. So that's the background of of aims. Now let's look at means. The obvious thing to say about means is that the means available to China um, have experienced since uh, the late 1970s a rapid and ongoing increase. So China's material base, as it were, um, is getting bigger in almost all respects. And this baseline fact is not going to go away. There may be some ups and downs to it, um, but in general it seems sound to assume that China is going to go on uh, getting stronger for the foreseeable future. So the question for outsiders is what is China going to do with this steadily increasing set of capabilities in relation to the aims that it has? Is it going to channel these capabilities into hard power, uh, make itself militarily uh, stronger, and go for a kind of military hegemony in the long run? Or is it going to channel these new resources into soft power and try to uh, uh, take a different approach to consolidating uh, and projecting its, its power? Deng Xiaoping is famous for uh, advising that China should keep a low profile, uh, but uh, and there's a debate now in China about whether this policy should be abandoned or not. Uh, is, it, is it now out of date? Has China become uh, strong enough? Or was it that, that, uh, that Deng meant that China should, as it were, keep a low profile and concentrate on its own affairs for a very long period? Not clear, but there's an interesting debate in China uh, about this question. Now, if we then take this, uh, the basic background frame of rising capabilities, which are likely to continue to rise for the foreseeable future, um, with this relatively stable set of seven uh, aims in foreign policy, what then kinds of puzzles and contradictions does this throw up? In other words, what kind of, uh, of a set of contradictions and puzzles does China's grand strategy have to solve? Yeah. There are quite a lot of fairly severe contradictions uh, in this, and I'll run through some of them just to sketch in the difficulty of the task facing China. It's not an easy, uh, not an easy job uh, uh, running China and finding its, its, uh, its proper place in the world. Right? So I've hinted at some of these already, but let me spell them out. Right? So how is China to pursue territorial disputes and an apparent aspiration to regional primacy while at the same time striving to maintain favorable uh, and harmonious uh, 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 regional and global environments 
uh, with its neighbors uh, and with the U.S. Now, how does it square this particular circle? Secondly, how can China integrate itself into a U.S.-led global economic order and promote a stable international environment, as it says it needs, while treating the U.S. as a strategic rival? There seems to be uh, a contradiction here. Third, how can China feature anti-hegemonism as a general goal while apparently coveting primacy within its home region. Uh, China's attitude towards the smaller states uh, around it um, is often phrased in in terms of big and small powers and their relative um, uh, rights, duties, and responsibilities. So China has a rhetoric of anti-hegemonism on the one hand aimed at the U.S., but seems to want to to be a regional uh, hegemon uh, itself. How is this circle to be squared? Fourth, how is China to pursue stability domestically by the use of internal crackdowns, as it periodically does, most obviously in 1989, but also going on uh, over the last uh, two or three years, whilst at the same time countering the China threat theory? What goes on inside China matters to how other people see it. It's perfectly true to say that what goes on inside China is China's business. China is a sovereign state. It can do what it likes inside its borders, but it can't do what it likes and expect nobody else to notice um, or uh, expect others not to become fearful of China uh, seeing the way it treats its own citizens. Fifth, how is China to cultivate nationalism and a sense of of historical victimhood, which seem to be the mainstreams um, of of the uh, patriotic education uh, that's been going since the the early 1990s? Uh, This is aimed at bolstering regime legitimacy domestically. But how does it do this without becoming hostage to nationalist opinion within China regarding the pursuit of territorial disputes uh, with neighbors? Uh, And how does it avoid then casting Japan and the United States as enemies, undermining uh, the the basics of a peaceful rise? Again, uh, another contradiction. The sixth difficulty here is how does China achieve rapid development um, by creating a market society. And yet this market society is ruled by a communist party. That, on the face of it, looks like a formula for social instability and therefore goes against the aim of keeping a stable, uh, uh, stable and harmonious uh, society within China. That growing contradiction Uh, between a ruling communist party and a society which is frankly increasingly capitalist as anybody here who spent any time walking around on the streets of any major Chinese city will instantly see China is becoming a capitalist society you're not allowed to say that but it's extremely obvious when you uh, walk around in in the streets so there's a puzzle here which uh, needs to be addressed how does this Uh, Seventhly, the seventh difficulty, how does one reconcile the almost paranoid um, domestic security needs and and priorities um, of China with the unavoidable linkage of China's development to a Western-dominated global economy? This is another way, if you like, um, of formulating the capitalist-communist 
problem. How, do you, how does a, a capitalist society and a communist party, how do they cohabit together in a stable way? And the eighth difficulty, uh, final one here, uh, is how does China go about pursuing soft power by re-legitimizing the use of classical Chinese thought and culture, as it has been uh, quite intently doing for the last few years, whilst at the same time trying to maintain the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party and the anti-democratic line that that party necessarily pursues. This leads to all kinds of interesting puzzles uh, and difficulties. Um, Any of you who follow Chinese foreign policy rhetoric uh, will have seen that there's a great deal being said about harmony and that this comes out basically of Confucian uh, thinking. Um, China is uh, using phrases like harmonious society and harmonious world uh, and win-win solutions and, uh, uh, and all of that. This basically comes out of a Confucian logic about harmonious uh, societies and harmonious relations, but that logic, even with somebody as poorly tutored in Confucian uh, classics as myself, it's pretty obvious that the necessary condition in Confucian thinking for harmony is hierarchy, right? And there's no question about that, but also uh, present Chinese foreign policy rhetoric says nothing about the hierarchy side of this equation. There's a great deal said about, uh, about harmony and nothing at all said about the necessary condition of hierarchy on which this seems to depend. Right? So those are the problems that a Chinese grand strategy confronts. It's a difficult problem set. There's not going to be an easy solution to, uh, to this. Now, as I've suggested, warlike rise is ruled out pretty much, because nobody would win um, a great power war. Everybody would be, would be losers. Nobody's going to do this uh, other than by some terrible accident. Peaceful rise is therefore the only option. How does the rising power accommodate itself to the existing order, and how does the existing order accommodate itself to the rising power without their uh, uh, falling into major hostilities? Okay? That's the basic essence of peaceful rise. And as I've suggested, it divides into two distinct grand strategies. Cold peaceful rise um, is about... Uh, an environment in which there isn't war, um, but there's no trust and no friendship either. There's a lot of threat and a lot of suspicion. Think of the relationship between um, the West and Russia or between Egypt and Israel. No actual active war, um, but that's really all you can say about it as, in terms of, of peace. There's no friendship and no trust. Warm, peaceful rise... Um, implies a measure of friendship, um, quite a high degree of, uh, of trust, and a low sense of threat. Right? Think of relationships um, within uh, the EU or between uh, the US and Canada uh, and, and Mexico. In other words, warm, peaceful rise is kind of pushing towards a security community type uh, set of relationships. And it's this distinction between uh, cold and warm, peaceful rise that I want to focus on now um, in looking at at, at PRD as a grand strategy for China. At the moment, if you look at China's rhetoric and behavior, 
it contains elements of both warm and cold peaceful rise. Sometimes China is nasty and growling and bullying, and other times it's very friendly and warm and contributes to peacekeeping forces and all sorts of other things. It's doing both of these things at the same time, and its policy is therefore incoherent. The difficulty here um, is that mixing warm peaceful rise and cold peaceful rise doesn't work, right? It's going to produce a cold peaceful rise outcome because if, just think of your, of your own personal lives, if you're confronted with somebody whose behavior seems to be a schizophrenic mix of, of bullying and intimidation on the one hand and friendliness and warmth and harmony on the other hand, what are you going to do? Right? You're going to behave prudently. And in this, at least, I would agree uh, with the realists. I don't agree with them about much else. But I do think that logic of prudence is very powerful in international relations. So if you're confronted with this kind of mixed behavior, you're going to say, I'm not sure what I'm looking at here, but I better be careful because it looks as if this might turn nasty and therefore I better prepare for the worst case. So a logic of prudence on the part of China's neighbors and the other great powers suggests that the present mixed policy will certainly produce a cold, peaceful rise outcome. That, therefore, is the trajectory that China is on. If it wants to achieve warm, peaceful rise, then it will have to create a more coherent foreign policy directed towards that particular end. So what I want to do next is look at how cold peaceful rise and warm peaceful rise, as it were, measure up against China's uh, uh, seven foreign and security policy aims, as I started off with, because those aims, I think, are quite consistent uh, and not, not showing any great signs of change. If we start with the cold peaceful rise, there's no problem really, or no immediate problem at least, uh, between cold peaceful rise and the first five of, uh, of China's uh, uh, foreign and security policy aims. In other words, uh, you can have cold peaceful rise and maintain the exclusive rule of the Communist Party, maintain high economic growth, maintain the stability of Chinese society, defend the country's territorial integrity, uh, and increase China's national power relative to, to all others. The difficulty, or the most obvious difficulty, is that cold peaceful rise is an absolute uh, and strong contradiction with the seventh aim, which is avoiding the China threat response. In other words, avoiding having others seeing China as threatening. There's also a quite likely contradiction, which would be a bit slower to develop, between cold peaceful rise and the, uh, the sixth aim of cultivating um, a favorable regional and global environment, at least unless that means that a favorable environment is simply defined as Chinese hegemony um, over its region achieved by intimidation and, uh, and bullying. So at the moment, it's pretty clear that cold peaceful rise is de facto China's current strategy. Um, China's relationships with the United States and with Japan and with India can all be defined in terms of cold peaceful rise, especially um, uh, that is true in relation to Japan. You might say that... Uh, 
China's relations with Russia uh, uh, are an indication of a warm, peaceful rise, but I see that as a very fragile and instrumental strategic partnership based mainly um, on uh, anti-Americanism, but there's, there's no kind of warmth or friendship uh, underlying that. It's only an instrumental uh, cooperation. And uh, since the, uh, the more assertive, uh, as one uh, is obliged politely to call it these days, uh, the more assertive turn in China's foreign policy um, towards its neighbors in the East and South China Seas, um, uh, starting in 2008-2009, basically uh, it's a cold, peaceful rise in relation to those neighbors as well. Now the puzzle about this, um, and to me it's a very big puzzle, because China is full of realist thinkers, and therefore uh, this puzzle should have been one that uh, uh, has been addressed, but doesn't seem to be, is that the main beneficiary of a cold, peaceful rise strategy is the United States. Um, One could imagine, uh, if one were speculating wildly, that the American Secret Services had had (laughs) succeeded beyond their wildest dreams in planting moles in China's foreign security policy-making process, um, and they were, in a sense, writing the script, uh, because this script perfectly suits the hawks in Washington. Uh, They like nothing more than the idea of having a peer competitor to make American foreign and security policy um, easier to formulate, um, and by threatening and intimidating all of its neighbors, uh, China is making American policy uh, in the Western Pacific extraordinarily easy. So here we have America, a a power that is beginning to decline. Um, It's not going away, it's not going to be the fall of Rome or anything like that, but it is beginning to decline, um, and China is helping it to decline gracefully because (laughs) all of the Southeast Asian countries and Japan and others are beating a path to Washington's door saying, don't leave. Uh, Because we've got this really ambiguous situation going on here with this huge country getting stronger uh, and having this strange mixed schizophrenic rhetoric and and we don't quite know what's happening but we don't like the look of it. So uh, Washington is the principal beneficiary of a cold peaceful rise strategy. Why that hasn't registered in Beijing more strongly uh, uh, is a bit of a mystery to me. In one sense, I mean, your basic, if you're thinking like a realist, and there may be, how many realists out there? Uh, huh. A lot of shy realists out there, okay. Uh, if, you're, if you're thinking like a realist, the last thing you want to do, if I can borrow terms from Osama bin Laden, is unite your near and far enemies. Um, so the idea uh, that uh, China's policy should be pushing Japan into the arms of the United States is just, in pure realist logic, completely crazy. It's just a silly thing to be doing. So there's a puzzle about cold, peaceful rice. Why would China want to pursue cold, peaceful rice? It doesn't seem to make sense. If we look um, at the warm, peaceful rice strategy, this, I will argue, is a lot more demanding on China, and particularly demanding in relation to uh, some of its domestic policies, but also a lot more rewarding. It seems to me that if China wants to hang on to its seven foreign and security policy aims, it can have all of them 
with relatively few um, contradictions. It can keep AIM-7, um, trying to uh, minimize the China threat, and it can keep AIM-6 about um, uh, having a favorable uh, regional and international environment for its, uh, for its development. War and Peaceful Rise assumes that nothing has changed in the basic reasoning underlying Deng's thinking in uh, the late 1970s, uh, that peace and development have become the main characteristics of the international society, that China is no longer existentially threatened by other great powers, and that China's own development depends on engagement with the global economy. All of that still seems to me to be true. China is not existentially threatened um, as it was uh, during much of the 19th and 20th century. Nobody's going to try and take bits of China uh, away. Nobody's going to invade China or, or, or attack it. Much of the world actually welcomes China's rise. The only worry they have is whether this rise is going to be peaceful um, and warm um, or uh, cold and bullying. So a warm, peaceful rise strategy um, inverts the normal logic of security. Uh, it's aimed more at thinking about security with, or common security as it's sometimes called, um, than security against, which is the classical uh, realist version about security. So common security is, a, is about how you collectively provide uh, security, whether economic or military or political or environmental, uh, with other players in, in the system. And China has proved that it can do this. I mean, it's, uh, for a time it had good relationships with the Southeast Asian countries and participated um, in their organizations, and it does uh, good work in peacekeeping operations, etc., etc. It's not that China can't do this. It's that it hasn't done it consistently, and it has, therefore, this strange mixed policy. So my argument here is that the problem is not the rise of China in and of itself, most of the world accepts that China's rise is inevitable, and many will accept it as being, in, in a lot of ways, beneficial. The problem is how China rises. Is it going to be cold, negative, and threatening, or warm, positive, and attractive? Thinking about what China would need to do in order to pursue a, a warm, peaceful rise uh, strategy, uh, I'm just going to sketch out um, a few things which suggest that uh, there would need to be some quite substantial U-turns in Chinese policy, but these may still be, uh, still be achievable. So I'm going to look at domestic and regional and global levels. As I've argued already on the domestic level, how China behaves at home is entirely its own business, but um, China cannot expect that how it behaves at home will not affect how others outside China view it and whether they see it as threatening or not. So I think there are three, three things that need to be done uh, domestically in China. The first um, is that reform of the Communist Party, about which it talks a lot but not, doesn't do very much, needs to keep pace with the development of the social market economy in China. Deng Xiaoping got this, and he, uh, uh, in a remarkable act of pragmatism, uh, managed to invent market communism, right? a wonderful oxymoron. Um, but that, that has been extraordinarily successful. Right? 
what the, uh, what the Chinese Communist Party, par- Communist Party needs to do next um, is to invent what I would think of as pluralist communism. I am not saying democratic communism. China needs to find its own answers to that sort of question, but pluralist at least in some way. In other words, it needs to open itself up much more than it has done um, to the much more diverse and capable society that it has created. In relation to its external image and whether others see it as threatening or not, it needs to take a more multicultural approach to some of its internal problems. I'm thinking most obviously of Tibet and Xinjiang. Um, but up to a point also in relation to Taiwan. And at the moment, this is not being done. A a rather um, coercive, often quite violent policy of repression um, is being used, and this plays extremely badly abroad. It makes China look like it's imperial or imperialist internally and increases the worries of its neighbors about how China might then behave towards them. There are lots and lots of examples in the world um, of how to, how to handle multicultural problems in uh, ways that are uh, less violent and less repressive than those being pursued at the moment. And this is not about breaking up the country or anything like that, which is, of course, what I would be accused of if I said this um, in, uh, in China. The country is not going to break up. Tibet is not going anywhere, and Xinjiang is not going anywhere. Right? But there needs to be better and more peaceful and more harmonious ways Um, of keeping the country together. The third thing that needs to happen domestically is that China needs to have a more centralized uh, control over foreign and security policy. There may be signs that this is happening in the new um, uh, security body, central security body that has been set up, but it's too early to tell. But certainly in the last few years, it has been the case that for example, policy in the South and East China Seas is being made by at least a dozen different agencies within, within uh, China. There are fisheries agencies and coast guards and provincial governments and uh, 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 state-owned uh, corporations and all kinds of other things that are making their own foreign policies in an incoherent way. Uh, the Chinese foreign ministry is weak within the political hierarchy of China, and this needs to change uh, because peaceful rise, warm peaceful rise, requires a really strict control and great coherence in foreign policy and and the maintenance of that over a long period of time if it's to persuade um, China's neighbors that that they can trust it. At the regional level, um, again, three uh, three thoughts. China is not, uh, this goes back to the article that Mick and I wrote that he mentioned, I mean, China is not in the happy position that the United States is in, whereby it could easily insulate its region as the United States did with the Monroe Doctrine and keep other great powers out of it. Partly because there's another great power, namely Japan, inside China's region, and partly because the United States uh, is, uh, is already parked there. So China cannot insulate its region. It needs, therefore, to have a more complex and sophisticated policy of getting along with its regions, um, and Indonesia and Germany might provide interesting uh, models for how to get along with the neighbors. 
So three suggestions here. First of all, um, uh, China, and not just China, also Japan and Korea, need to address this really ridiculous but seriously bad history problem that they've all got. Um, Old history is continuously reproduced in all three countries in ways that impact very negatively and intentionally so on their present relations. Much of Chinese nationalism since uh, the early 1990s has been constructed around specifically anti-Japanese tropes. And if you spend any time watching Chinese television, God help you, you will be treated to thousands and thousands of anti-Japanese films and series and all kinds of stuff. It's just the background fodder of day-to-day life in China. And this is terribly destructive. How is China to rise peacefully while at the same time um, uh, presenting its near neighbor as, uh, as an enemy. Um, I was aghast to find um, Yan Shui Tong, who is a very distinguished uh, 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 realist thinker in China, in his most recent paper, uh, arguing that uh, China should treat the Philippines and Japan as enemies. Right? What is this to do with peaceful rise, I, uh, uh, I ask myself. The history problem needs to be addressed. I mean, China is ruled for better or worse by a communist party, and communist parties are supposed to look forward. They're about the future, they're about progress. Uh, But the present party is most determinedly looking backward um, and trying to find sources of legitimacy um, in its own historical role um, and therefore making, as it were, the country look backwards uh, and reviving and keeping alive all kinds of old enmities that would be best uh, put behind. I'm not suggesting that uh, the, the Japanese are innocent or anything like that, but the contrast between the way in which history is used um, to, as it were, undermine the stability of the present um, in Northeast Asia and the rest of the world um, is quite alarming. In relation to these territorial disputes, um, it seems to me if China wants to rise peacefully, it has to seize the moral high ground and say, we will put all of these out to binding international arbitration. And if China and others don't like the existing international arbitration machinery, then they should set up their own, some machinery that they can all trust. The Chinese don't trust uh, the, the present ICJ machinery because there's a Japanese judge Uh, sitting there Uh, but these are all solvable problems if there is a will to solve them and China could claim the moral high ground which is now being taken by the Philippines and others who are basically saying you know we're going to try and take this to to international jurisdiction and the third thing to be done regionally is that China needs to become more coherent in its talk of multipolarity and its preference for a multipolar world on the one hand Um, And on the other hand, it's persistent rejection and campaigning against India and Japan having seats on the United Nations Security Council. This just doesn't add up. If you want a multipolar world, then you have to let the other powers in the world have their place at the table. So either shut up about multipolarity and say we're going for hegemony, um, or let these people have their rightful place at the table. That might they even have the advantage of embarrassing Britain sufficiently to give up its, uh, its seat <laughs> or turn it over to Europe. The regional level, it seems to me, is key, um, and that if the regional level can be addressed, 
this would put China into uh, a, a relatively favorable relationship with its region, which would weaken the U.S. position in East Asia at no cost or no risk to China. Right? How can the U.S. complain about China being nice to its neighbors? It's just not plausible. So it's a very low-cost, low-risk strategy, which potentially would pay very high dividends for a rising China. It would weaken the China threat lobby in the U.S. and elsewhere, um, and in a sense uh, remove the, uh, the current advantage that China gives to the U.S., uh, because all of its neighbors are, are flocking towards the U.S. For, uh, for reassurance. China needs to have a lot more confidence than it seems to have at the moment in the natural effects um, of its increasing power. If you're thinking like a realist, uh, then you can uh, assume that as you get bigger and more powerful, your influence will naturally increase in all kinds of ways. Not something you have to push or make happen. It just happens naturally. So if China is confident about growing stronger, it should be confident uh, that its influence will also increase in that way. Okay, to draw some conclusions then. The basic question is what kind of great power does China want to be? Does it want to be one that claims its place in international society mainly by power political means, looking backwards, seeking vengeance for the century of humiliation and seeking to restore some kind of sinocentric system in East Asia? Or does it want to pursue more consensual means, use its rising power to look forward, to create a more pluralist, decentered international society in what is the emerging post-Western age? It seems to me that a warm, peaceful rise um, is a viable strategy for doing the second of these two things, it's not an easy thing to do, but it is, in principle, um, achievable. It's very clear that the present mix of hard and soft foreign policy rhetoric and behavior will not work to produce warm, peaceful rise, and that China has to make a basic choice. Does it choose to think of itself as living in a realist Hobbesian world, um, in one in which power politics is the only game in town? Or does it accept as durably valid um, Deng Xiaoping's view that the nature of the international system has indeed changed towards one of low risk of great power war and open opportunities for co-development? It seems to me that China cannot have a coherent grand strategy until its leaders commit to one or the other of these views. Hovering between cold and warm peaceful rise will simply produce cold peaceful rise. And I think that history will probably judge rather harshly a leadership whose rhetoric of peace and harmony raised hopes of a warm, peaceful rise, but whose performance delivered a cold, peaceful rise. I like the idea of peaceful rise development. It's a unique idea for China's grand strategy. It's a homegrown idea, and I think if properly pursued, it would deliver the goods that China, the aims of China's uh, policy want. A leadership that delivered it as warm, peaceful rise could claim a truly historical accomplishment that would mark the end of the Western-dominated era of warlike rise and move to a new model of international relations. Thank you for listening.
Okay, Barry. Uh, just one or two little thoughts there, I gather. Um, hot, cold, warm, realist. Arnie Westad, over to you. <laughs> Thanks, Mick. Uh, and thank you, Barry. It's a difficult act to follow, so I will be very brief. But first, let me say that it is a wonderful opportunity just to listen to one of the leading international relations thinkers of our time trying to deal with this complicated variegated rise of China over the past generation. So that was really a masterclass, Barry. I much enjoyed it. Let me just pick up on some of these issues. I mean, I come from a perspective where I'm probably slightly more alarmist with regard to what is happening at the moment uh, than what Barry is. Uh, and this comes from someone who has a lifelong involvement and engagement with China regards himself in the truest sense as a friend of China who likes to sing the old song, War I Beijing Tiananmen. Um, Don't do that again. I won't. <laughs> but someone had to sing here tonight, right, me? <laughs> and I'll do it later on, OK? <laughs> but in spite of that deep love, I am, uh, I am concerned, and I'm increasingly concerned about what's happening at the moment. Much of my concern goes back to issues that Barry has already Right. Uh, the core of it is, of course, the issue of whether peaceful rise indeed is the only option. And on paper, that's certainly what it looks like. Also in terms of China's own historical experience, that is indeed what the country should be pointed towards. China has suffered from a very long time period that I have discussed elsewhere, 200 years of violence and wars that have mostly been imposed on the country. You should assume that a country with that kind of background should try to opt, if there is the opportunity for doing so, which Barry has very clearly demonstrated that there is, a peaceful rise option. I think it is the likely outcome. At the moment, it looks more, as Barry put it, as a cold uh, peace rather than a warm peace, a, a, a peace that embraces, first and foremost, the region and then, and then the world. But it still seems likely to me that it is the most likely scenario. But it's not the only scenario. Um, first and foremost, of course, because this doesn't just depend on China. It also depends on what happens elsewhere within the regional system, and it depends to a very high degree on what the United States decides to do in a broad future where the American political leadership will have to make a lot of very tough choices about their own position, not just within um, Eastern Asia, but on a global scale. Declining as a superpower, which I think all three of us up here, well, a little bit of an exception for me, <laughs> agree might be on the cards for the United States at least more long term, is infinitely more difficult than being in a rising uh, position. And very often you find uh, powers that see themselves as challenged, as being more violent and more uh, clear in terms of the condemnation of what is happening elsewhere. So it doesn't just depend on China. But China's policies, as they have been developed, over the past five, six years, do give some reason for concern, in including reason for concern about accidental war. And I think there is the real possibility that if things go entirely belly up in Korea, or if the relationship between China and Japan gets worse than what it is today, or if China continues its policies, very hardline policies with regard to the South China Sea, that this could indeed happen. So, peaceful rise. Very likely, don't rule out war by mishap or by the design of others. Now, of course, 
All of this will, on the Chinese side, at the end of the day, depend on the ideas that inform Chinese foreign policy. And I think Barry did a fantastic job of laying out what some of the options are. But I think if you summarize it, I mean, the way I see it now, particularly since Xi Jinping came to power, probably even a little bit before that, that it, it concentrates on two conflicting ideas, particularly with regard to its own region. And that's where you have to look at China's foreign policy development, I would venture, over the next half generation at least, if not longer. One is the idea that what China is after is more for China, more for its own country, within the existing international system that is already there. That's the Deng Xiaoping idea. That is the idea that goes back to China's reform and opening in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And it's a perfectly understandable idea coming out of a country where the vast majority of its population believe that it has been put aside, that it hasn't had a fair share of global developments in a positive, in a positive sense, and particularly perhaps within its own region. But then there is also the idea that China's status is as the central power within its own region. And the more that is accentuated in China's foreign policy, within the region and by projection globally, the more people will start to doubt that the idea about China rising peacefully is something that can be achieved over time. That the more for China might not be enough if you look at China's practice with regard to what is happening uh, within, within, its own, within its own region. Which brings us to the question of strategic deception. I mean, I have absolutely no intention to claim, and I have never claimed, that the current Chinese leadership is carrying out some sophisticated game of strategic deception against the rest of the world. That's not the point. The point is that it could very easily be seen as acting in ways that underline an element of subterfuge, um, biding one's time, waiting for a better opportunity to impose a Sinocentric order on the rest of its region. I don't think this is a decision that is being made in Beijing, but much of what China is doing at the moment seems to be pointing in, in that direction. This is important, and it's particularly important for the young Chinese generation, of whom there are many present here today. It's a question about political change. Now, very often you'll find this presented in China as one Chinese foreign policy that comes out of the Deng Xiaoping era and lasts up to today. I would argue not so. There are very dramatic changes that have taken place in China's foreign policy towards its region over the past five, six years or so, roughly since the uh, most acute phase of the latest um, international economic crisis. And they move away from what were some of the fundamentals, not just the, 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 the basic iterations, but the fundamentals of Deng Xiaoping's view on how China should interact with its own region. Deng said towards the end of his life that what he was most proud of in international affairs was not the full normalization with the United States. And it was not being able to put China on a more even keel in terms of its economic development. It was creating a fundamentally new relationship between China and its neighbors to the south. It was this complete turnaround that he managed, and he was the key figure in doing this, uh, of turning around the relationship with Southeast Asia from what had been for more than two generations a very conflictual relationship and over to a more collaborative, peaceful relationship. Within the past five to six years, the, Chinese, the current Chinese leadership have been able to wreck most of that. 
to the insistence on China's own rights to the South China Sea, and in general, a behavior that I think a lot of people who have worked with China for a very long time within the region, many of whom are of Chinese origin, see as being bullying, seen as being pushing in a direction that insists on China's rights over the rights of anyone else. Deng also said, and this is something that he said often and publicly within the leadership uh, groups in Beijing, China cannot rise against Japan. China can only rise with Japan. And I think that is a very fundamental truth in terms of China's international position back in the 1980s when Deng said this, maybe even more so today. And as Barry demonstrated in his lecture, what it seems to me that the current Chinese leadership is doing is to drive Japan as far away from China as one possibly can, not just for this generation, but possibly for another generation to come. That's not just a foreign policy mistake. It's, as one would like to, uh, uh, one like to say in, in, in old China, under old Chinese communism, it's deviationism. It takes away from what Deng wanted to achieve, and his whole generation indeed wanted to achieve, which was a strategic peace with Japan, based on almost a century of conflict, uh, which had certainly been to China's detriment. Now, some of this, some of these problems, we have to ask the question, why is this happening? I mean, there are many reasons for it. Some are political within China. We can discuss those later on in terms of nationalism, in terms of political ideas. Some of it, and I think it's very important to underline this, and Barry quite rightly did so, has to do with China's chaotic foreign policy process. I know of no other major country not even a, a, a middle-level uh, country, that has a foreign policy-making process that is so convoluted and, and, and chaotic as China. There are about 16 different entities that have uh, a significant role, one way or the other, in terms of how China makes its foreign policy. And as Barry said, the Bu, the foreign ministry, unfortunately is fairly low on that list. It's impossible for a great power to make a coherent policy, not to mention a grand strategy, under these kinds of conditions. Part of the reason of, for this, I think, is simply the way China is governed. So it seems to me, as I've said in other contexts, particularly when discussing this in China, that this is perhaps the most fundamental problem that there is. It's not in itself that China is a political dictatorship. That's a problem as well. I mean, more pluralism would be good for China, would be good for China internally. Um, it is really more connected to the fact that China is very badly governed. I mean, if you compare the level of ability in terms of governance now, when China is much more developed than it was about a generation ago, the quality of people who are there, their ability to understand the outside world, of interacting in a positive sense with what they see as trends that are good for China internationally, that level has been much diminished. And I'm afraid that I would have to say much of the same about China's domestic uh, policies as well. But there is, and I'll, I'll, I'll finish on this, Mick. There, there are, of course, also more profound sort of structural issues that China will have to contend with, whoever rules the country. Uh, one of them is, in my view, that China is an empire that behaves as if it were a nation state. It is the last surviving of the big empires. If you look at China's borders, in the High Qing era, in the mid-18th century, and what they look like today. For a, for a country that is often said to have been 200 years in decline, they are remarkably stable. 
they are remarkably um, uh, unchanged, with the exception of a piece of Mongolia that has been looped off. Now, Mongolia is important. It's not that, but, but even so. They are remarkably intact. And that places whoever governs in Beijing in a very, very difficult position. I mean, you have to try to move away from the imperial centralized form of policymaking and decision-making for your own sake, not for anyone else's sake, and over onto something that can deal with a country that is extremely diverse. And here I'm not just thinking about minority populations. I'm also talking about how China is governed internally in the relationship between the mainly Han Chinese provinces and the center. Uh, this will have a very strong effect on what China will look like um, in the future. We're seeing, I think, some of the dilemmas now in terms of what has been happening in Hong Kong. It's okay to say one country, two systems. I know the great Deng Xiaoping slogan. But in order to put something into that, you also have to listen to what people locally are saying. And this is where the problem has been so far in terms of how Beijing has dealt with the current crisis uh, in Hong Kong. It's not that I think anyone in, in Hong Kong expects China to deliver democracy for Hong Kong. How could they? They're not a democracy themselves. That's not what they do. But to use the opportunity to look at what the potential is for a slightly different form of development in Hong Kong that is more pluralistic, more open, less conflictual, without giving the kinds of instructions that now have been given to relatively pro-China leaders in Hong Kong. I was just there discussing this with some of them, many of whom, by the way, are LSE graduates. Not all LSE graduates are Democrats. Sure. <laughs> say, if this relationship is going to survive in the longer run between Hong Kong and the mainland in a positive sense, Beijing has to listen to what people in Hong Kong are saying. This is the problem. The lack of diversity, the lack of pluralism, the idea that China can only be ruled as an empire gets in the way of a serious foreign policy making, but it also gets in the way of how China is governed. Thank you very much, Johnny. Great. Questions? I've got one. I'll start. Um, Barry, I think you are not a realist, but you're resisting the realist argument to the bitter death. In essence, it seems, at least to some people, if not people in this audience, that the objective logic of any rising power is that it will, in the end, want to change the status quo and as it changes the status quo, even if it wants to do so in a relatively peaceful way, nonetheless it will end up in the situation which we are now in. The answer to why this is happening isn't because of the peculiarities of the Chinese decision-making body. Look at the American decision-making body just before the Syria decision or non-decision. It has to do simply, and this is what the realists would say, somebody like John Mearsheim, is simply the objective logic of the situation that China finds itself in. And however much it may talk, think, reflect on the notion of a peaceful rise, it can't do it. Uh, because the objective logic of power brings you inevitably in, in conflict with the status quo, whatever the outcomes are. The other thing, and I throw this one up to Arnie as well, I mean, what about the United States in all this? This was the kind of the dog that did not bark, uh, it seems to me. What would you say is the, has been the American role in this, Arnie? I mean, because there are two views on this. One, A, America is acting defensively, but it's been saying that for 100, well, 250 years. Uh, 
Um, in other words, the tilt to Asia was a defensive manoeuvre, defensive move, invited in empire by invitation. Or the, some would see this simply as, you know, America in decline. And the question to you, Arnie, really is, if one's got a rising China and a perception in Beijing of an America in decline... Mm. Doesn't that really add to all the dilemmas? Because it does seem to me there's two sides to this discussion. One about the rise of one power, but the perception of decline of another. So, Barry, are you really a realist who really doesn't want to be one? A realist in disguise. A realist in disguise. Is it my go? Yeah, why don't you have a go at that Um, first, and then we throw it straight open. Well, I'll... I'll In grand LSE style, I'll throw the question back at you. I mean, <laughs> oh, that's, your, that's my question, uh, your answer. Now what, we get some. what realists do is ignore the moral purpose of the state. So if you are a proper, sound-thinking realist, you would have to argue that, and here I'm going to take you on your own ground, <laughs> that it makes no difference at all that the Soviet Union was a communist country and the United States was a liberal democracy in 1945 and the beginning of the Cold War. If, I mean, it seems to me that as a realist, you'd have to believe that because you're mm. calculating only on the basis of power. Mm. Now, I simply cannot bring myself to believe that if the Soviet Union had been a liberal democracy and the United States a liberal democracy in 1945, yeah. that history would have unfolded as it did. I just don't believe that. I don't even begin mm. to believe no, not that. No, do I. Not do I. Okay. Mm. I'll, we'll come back to that one anyway. Okay. <laughs> Okay, you're not John, you're not John Mearsheimer. <laughs> On the America question, Arnie, just quick, the, and then we'll open the it up. Question. The America question. I think, and not just China, I think the whole region is okay. now positioning itself um, with regard to what they see as American decline within the region. And there's no doubt about that whatsoever. Uh, and, of course, there's quite a lot to go on for that. Um, the so-called pivot to Asia doesn't seem to have been a pillar to anywhere special. Um, when President Obama went on his recent trip to the region, it reminded one observer, I think quite accurately, as British royalty visiting former colonies, uh, it was necessary to do, but it didn't really have a sense in it of any particular strategic purpose. Now, one should be careful with this, because when we <coughs> think about what is going to happen if China becomes would be seen by its neighbours as more problematic than what it is today. I would agree with Mick on what you have said earlier on, but there certainly is the possibility that the United States will rather dramatically change its approach. But at the moment, and I think whether this is by design in Washington or because of what is happening regionally or because of what is happening in the global economy, I mean, we can discuss that, we can discuss that mm. endlessly, but what is very clear, and I do not necessarily think that this is all positive, the American role within the Eastern Asian region is seen as being in rapid decline. So I think that's one thing that we have to start, t- take as a starting point for this discussion. We can discuss why it is so, but perhaps more important, turning now to the audience, yeah. to discuss what the impact of that would be, if you agree with such an assessment, on what is going to happen in the region in the future. Okay, thanks, uh, Barry. Thanks. I need a question. Who's got the microphones? Yeah, chap up here. Yeah, 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 that's you. And then I'll take... How many, how many microphones does the LSC have? One over there. One over here. Two. We're not that poor. There's somebody in the middle there. Can you put... Yeah, I'll take one and then two together. Yeah, please, thank you. A, a question, not a speech, please. Thank you. I'm, I'm from the finance department of the LSC. Could you speak up? I'm from the finance department of the LSC. Well done. And, um, right. 
So throughout the whole discussion thing, um, I'm trying to look for a certain way that uh, China could find a strategy to peaceful development. And this strategy, of course, Professor Barrows already lists several points and suggests uh, three points of maybe that could improve this strategy. But essentially, China is alone in terms of finding this strategy because there's no countries in the history of mankind uh, as in the position of China now is trying to find a strategy in a, in a current international setting which probably not in favor of China. Um, and, and this way of finding strategy itself is difficult. That's probably uh, uh, caused the complexity of of of, um, of the strategy uh, by yeah. parents looking. Could you get to uh, the question? Yeah, great. No, no, I'm not being rude. Just other people. I think my question is already uh, already in the yeah. in the statement in the sense that is there any way that for China to um, to 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 figure out what are the strategies? Because there's yeah. no country in the history who can follow. Well, there's British Empire, yeah. or American Empire, but you know they did terrible things, so we can follow them. Right? Okay, so, that's great. Um, Christian understood. There's a lady here. Please, yeah. Um, I'm from the Department of Social Policy. So the states became the largest economy at the end of uh, 19th century, and it became the superpower in early 20th century. So do you consider that a peaceful rise? If so, what can China learn from that? Thank you. Okay. Right. Uniqueness and what can one learn? Let's just take those two ones quickly. Do you want to go first, Barry? Uh, Okay. well, it, it seems to me, I agree that China's in a difficult position. Um, it's, in a sense, by itself, it's an outlier amongst the, uh, amongst the great powers. But in a sense, the problem is China's to solve. Um, China is the rising power. Um, it, it's the one whose increase in strength is going to disturb the status quo in a, in a variety of ways. The status quo has in many ways been extremely receptive to the rise of China. I mean, as Mick and I argued in our paper, um, this is one of the things that never gets talked about. Britain played a very big role in the the rise of the United States to superpower status. And the United States has played a very big role in the the rise of China in the sense of allowing it relatively easily into the global economy and the American-led international order. Not without all kinds of difficulties around the edges, but America has not stood in the way of China's rise. Quite the contrary. But you would not know that um, from looking at uh, Chinese rhetoric, just as you wouldn't know from looking at American rhetoric (laughs) that Britain paid a big role um, in, in the rise of China. It seems to me, therefore, that's why the peaceful rise idea, to my mind, is such a powerful one. It's a Chinese idea, and it's exactly right. In the, and this goes a little bit to, to your question, that in the, you know, the contemporary conditions have changed. We're in a, in a unique set of conditions. So I don't think that an analogy can be drawn between, um, say, the rise of the U.S. to superpower standing, and you can look at Mix and, and my uh, article on this, because... China, at least in my view, I'm not sure about Mick, but uh, in my view, China is not going to become a superpower, and the United States is not going to remain one. Right? Mm-hmm. Superpower status 
is something that uh, has been a transient feature of the international system, which is now disappearing, because uh, what the rise of China and the so-called rise of the rest, um, uh, as Fareed Zakaria put it, what that means is that everybody is now discovering the revolutions of modernity that gave the United States and Britain and a few other countries big relative power, the power to dominate the planet. In the future, nobody's going to have the power to dominate the planet because while China rises, everybody else is rising as well, and the risen powers are not going away. Japan may decline a bit, and the U.S. may decline a bit, and, and Europe may decline a bit relatively, but they're not disappearing. This is not a fall of Rome scenario. So you're looking at a world in which there will be lots of great powers and lots of regional powers and no superpowers, and that's the world for which China needs to develop a grand strategy. Arnie, you want to quick... That's, that's actually the problem. But very often, as I said, I was just in China, and very often when you discuss this with Chinese friends and colleagues, you get the impression, because of the extreme centeredness on the United States, mm-hmm. that China, in a way, have to study the rise of the United States and do what the United States did. <laughs> That's a pretty disastrous perception of, of how countries ought to rise. I mean, going back to Barry's initial question. Did the United States rise peacefully? Of course not. I mean, ask Mexicans, or ask people in the Caribbean, or ask, ask Canadians. You know, of course, of course it didn't. The point is rather the opposite. When the United States was moving into a position of global power in the 20th century, it showed, in my view, a quite unique ability through several generations of foreign policy makers to learn from its own mistakes and to be able to build a foreign policy that drew others towards them. Where the United States came to be seen, for good or bad, as representing more than itself. Yeah? That, mm-hmm. was the, that was the key of American foreign policy genius, particularly during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And this is what China seems to be moving away from. And then you have people of goodwill, I must say, internally in China, who are basically saying, well, the United States rose in this way, so we can rise in that way. You know, and this is, comes very close to what Barry ended up by saying, you know, you're, if you think that way, you belong in the wrong century. I think Barry just wants a, uh, just a five seconds to that. If I can put that in, in other, perhaps uh, slightly more cynical terms, um, China can't follow uh, the U.S. pattern of rise because the U.S. rose by free riding on other people's wars. Europe's an Asia. You might yes. notice that if you, you know, if you look at uh, the First and Second World War, the Americans were very late in, right? <laughs> the last one in. Brilliant, okay, brilliant, because you come in late, you don't have very many casualties, and you pick up all the pieces afterwards, okay? Um, So twice uh, the U.S. had this historical opportunity. But that kind of great power war isn't happening anymore, Mm. and Mm. therefore China cannot play that game. It's just not there to be played. Okay, there's a lady here, and and then, yeah, please. I'm Anuradha. I'm an alumnus of the school from the Economic History Department, and I'm from India. And my question is slightly more specific to the region. Uh, Taking up, Professor, from uh, the last player in, in Afghanistan, the NATO and the allies are pulling out this year. And uh, do you see a case for China going in over there as an extension of its uh, policy? And uh, how do you think it is, uh, if at all, 
is your the cold peaceful rise versus the warm peaceful rise given the fact that there is also islamic uh, fundamentalism in its sinjiang area okay i'll take one more quick take the chap here just to, yeah go up yeah 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 sure sorry a bit running out of time please uh, yeah there's a question for professor buzan uh, he mentioned that uh, it would be a very low cost policy for china to advocate putting uh, countries such as japan and india on the security council but if there were a situation in which there were conflict with those powers would it be totally insignificant if those other powers had veto powers on the security council especially given the symbolic nature of their decisions okay we're going to take because of the time constraints a lot of hands have gone up but i think we're going to have to take those as the last two questions uh, why doesn't arnie go first on that and then uh, barry to any summarize right, arnie arnie the security council question to to barry only as someone of his, I think, intellectual stature may be able to make any sense of uh, policy, not just China's, but other, other policies as well, with regard to Security Council reform. On Afghanistan, uh, Xinjiang extremism, I mean, China has a big strategic problem with regard to Southeast Asia. The name of that strategic problem is Pakistan. And this is a, this is an ongoing process. Um, uh, it is a, it's a real dilemma for, for, for Chinese foreign policy. Um, it has an ally within the region that is itself, Pakistan, positioning itself as being as close as it possibly can be to China, while at the same time, if you want to walk around in Xinjiang, as I did not that long ago, you see most of the bearded young men with the Quran under their arms sitting around in the Sukh, or whatever they call it around there, uh, trying to uh, translate from Urdu. So, I mean, these are... these. Pakistan is a real problem with regard to uh, security, at least the way security is seen uh, by the, uh, from the Chinese perspective, from the Chinese government's perspective, and then provides indirectly some of the reasons for what uh, Barry uh, uh, mentioned, the, the, the uh, crackdowns on more legitimate forms of uh, urgings for, for religious autonomy and, and, and uh, cultural recognition in, in Xinjiang. On Afghanistan especially, I, I think China will be very careful with moving towards more of a role in Afghanistan. Part of the reason has to do with its relationship with Pakistan, but it also has to do with its relationship with India. I, mean, I think it's pretty clear after the last visit, uh, Xi Jinping's visit to India, that this is a field where the current Beijing leadership has been looking very hard at what they can do to try to improve overall relations. Now, it's hard again because of Pakistan. That's the main, the main difficulty that is there. It will get infinitely much worse if China was seen as becoming a major power in Afghanistan after the, after the Western withdrawal. So I don't think, I mean, my guess is that you wouldn't see all that much happening with regard to that. I think what one will see, to, and my comments on optimistic note, I think the leadership in Beijing, because of all its other difficulties, have decided that they will try to see if it's possible to solve some of China's problems with regard to India. Whether that will go anywhere, of course, that remains to be seen. But it's pretty clear that that is the strategy at the moment. Yeah. Uh, Barry, last, last point. Okay, I, I mean, I think the, uh, on Afghanistan, uh, there's a whole range, it's a good question, and there's a whole range of other places you could have asked the same question about Africa in some ways, where um, China's current policy of uh, non-intervention, so-called, and, and uh, you know, letting, basically doing pragmatic deals with anybody who's in power, 
Um, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays in, in the longer run. And I, I, honestly, I don't know the answer to this. But I can't imagine uh, that if China remains as sensitive as it is um, to Islamist uh, unrest in Xinjiang, that it's going to remain uh, with a hands-off attitude towards the apparent sources of this trouble on its borders um, if the U.S. and NATO and others don't handle them. Those things, in, in my kind of image of a, of a more decentered world order, those things are more likely to become local issues because India has interests in Afghanistan as well as, as Pakistan, and therefore you know, there's going to be a likely interplay of the, of the local great powers in that uh, in that region. But exactly how that's going to unfold and how China is going to uh, change the, the rationales of its, of its foreign policy from uh, non-intervention at the moment to intervention. Maybe they're going to learn some lessons from the Russians. I don't know. They've been very quiet mm. about Russian <laughs> intervention, uh, interventionism. Um, so it's, it's an important question, but it's, it's really not possible to answer it in, in any detail. But it does underline a general dilemma for, for, uh, for China's policy. Um, on the Security Council question, yeah, I mean, I think it's perfectly right to say that um, you know, if India and uh, uh, Japan had seats on the UN Security Council, this would, it would both increase their status and, to some extent, increase their legal and political clout. Um, uh, all, all I'm saying um, is that China needs to have a more coherent foreign policy. So it either needs to shut up about multipolarity um, or, or continue talking about multipolarity and get on with uh, you know, a coherent policy that allows that, that to happen. Because although um, Japan and India would have more status in relation to China, they'd also have more status in relation to the US and the, and the West. And that might be seen, you know, the, the argument for multipolarity in general is quite a powerful one. Uh, but at the moment, uh, uh, Chinese policy on this is, is simply incoherent, and at least in relation to Japan, that seems to have a great deal to do um, with the present regime's absolute unwillingness to acknowledge that Japan is in any way, shape, or form an equal to China. They want China to be number one in that hierarchy in relation to Japan. So the local problem is translating itself into the global one. Thank, thanks very much, Barry. If, if next week we uh, pick up the People's Daily and foreign policy in China has changed <coughs> and, and the Communist Party is reformed, the domestic politics towards Tibet, Xinjiang and Taiwan, and there's a more coordinated strategy, you know it began at the LSE. <laughs> <coughs> Which, of course, is how things are in the world. Um, as we know, we, we, we punch above our weight, to use that appalling phrase. Uh, Barry, thank you very much. Thank you very much. One announcement, one announcement before you all go off to the library or wherever you're going to. We have a second lecture in the series with Ambassador Wu Jianmin, which will take place on Wednesday, 22nd of October of this year in this theatre. A title to be announced. It'll be a continuation in many ways of some of the themes and some of the questions we have developed tonight. Thank you again. Thank you to Barry. Thank you to Arnie. Thank you.